Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, he walks in a month. Why? Hey guys, welcome to the Celluloid Fiends podcast. You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter at Celluloid Fiends and at Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. And if you haven't already done so, head over to the Apple Podcasts app or Google Podcasts, Spotify, and go ahead and subscribe as well as leave us a rating and a review on iTunes because it really helps us out. Uh, I'm your host, Mo Long, and you can check me out at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. You can read my film reviews at cupofmo.com, and I write about tech stuff over at Tech Up Your Life. And tonight, I am joined by my wonderful co-host. What's up, Celluloid Fiends? It's Wes Clifton. I'm a writer. I'm a musician. I am a film fanatic. Uh, you can check me out on Instagram at Cliff Weston. Uh, you can check out my writing at my website, wdclifton.wordpress.com. Um, but yeah, that's where you can find me on the internet. So what have you been watching this week? And have you picked up any Blu-rays? Because I know I picked up several that I'm pretty jazzed about. Yeah, you know... Um... What have I been watching this week? Well, since since the last episode, I wasn't really done with Westerns, so I've kind of still been watching a few Westerns here and there. Um, I Let's see. I started watching... I feel like I've started watching several things and haven't watched full movies a lot. I've, I started watching Tombstone. I started watching Jeremiah Johnson. Um, oh, I did watch Just Mercy recently, which was very good, as I knew it would be. I love Michael B. Jordan. So uh, have you seen that? I did, and I absolutely loved it. I really appreciated the way that it talked about the systemic racism. It didn't just focus on one individual story. So I thought it kind of touched on the broader topic as well, which was really important. Yeah, very, very moving, very timely and and very well written, well acted. I just thought it was a, a really a tour de force all around. Really, really enjoyed that one. I actually ended up buying it, even though I know they were running some specials on on Amazon. Um, so so let's see. I watched that um, because of our topic for tonight. I've had neo noir on the brain a little bit and I've been watching. Uh, I haven't finished it yet because it's so long, but I've been kind of watching or rewatching one of my favorite movies from 2019, which is motherless Brooklyn. I really loved that movie. It went under the radar and I can't really figure out why. And so I've been watching that, uh, recent pickups on, I haven't been out tape hunting obviously because of the way the world is right now, but recent pickups on Blu-ray, uh, I have invested in a couple things from Blue Underground, um, just kind of basically rounding out my Fulci <laughs> collection even more. I got the Blue Underground super special three disc uh, limited, or sorry, four disc limited edition uh, Lucio Fulci's Zombie, and I got a three disc version from Blue Underground of Lucio Fulci's Manhattan Baby as well. So uh, just really riding that Fulci train. How about you, man? What have you been up to? What have you been watching? 
so I have been watching uh, some Blu-rays in the mail from DVD Netflix. Uh, most recently, I watched the Possession of Hannah Grace, which I was really excited about. I, I remember the trailers made it look very appealing, and it was pretty bad. Oh, it, it was really visually striking, and I liked the sound design a lot because it featured long stints of just mostly silence, mm-hmm. and you just hear footsteps or a little or some dialogue. And the score was almost non-existent, but then when it was there, it was really powerful and noticeable. Mm-hmm. But then it just it was just ridden with tropes, and oh, it was not very frightening at all. So can't recommend that one. I also watched Dark Waters, though. Uh, have you? I don't know if you've seen that one. Re- refresh me. I, I feel like I did watch a movie called that a long time ago. So I don't. I don't know. This is a pretty recent one. Okay, it no. was a 2019 film starring Mark Ruffalo, and it's based on a true story. And it's about DuPont Chemical Corporation oh. contaminating this uh, small town in West Virginia, and it was a really really powerful story. And I think it's a film that is kind of a must watch. Dude, I really wanted to see that. Actually, now that you say that, I remember the trailer and I really wanted to see it. And I feel like it was just in and out at the Alamo so quick that I missed it. But I do want to check that out. I'd forgotten all about it. Yeah. So I had the, I had the same experience. I really wanted to go see it in theaters. And I think it, it was in theaters less than a week or something like that. Maybe, maybe because it was uh, kind of, art house or something i don't know but it was it was barely in theaters so i ended up renting that one i I think you'd like it a lot okay cool uh and then i also watched moana recently oh yeah i I signed up for disney plus a while back and have been very much enjoying that Uh, and i thought i thought moana was pretty solid uh the animation for me was particularly enjoyable because i'm kind of partial to that old school hand-drawn stuff and this was of course computer animated but there were there were just there was so much detail and you could see like the reflection of the sun off of the water and there was this realism that i don't recall at all from even a few years ago pixar films so yeah i I thought it was good uh on i I picked up a couple blu-rays recently uh i i finally upgraded to a 4k blu-ray player which i've been very excited about and although I've been tempted to just replace everything that I own with a 4K version, I have resisted that temptation. Uh, but I did pick up Jaws, the steelbook on Blu-ray 4K. And I picked up the John Wick trilogy steelbook 4K nice. edition. And I picked up Ad Astra as well, which I absolutely loved. And I thought it was one of the better. It was one of the best sci-fi films, I think, in the past decade. Dude, when we're out and about again, I want to see that Jaws 4K so bad. <laughs> I love Jaws so much. I'm really worried that this is going to be the first year in years that I don't get to see it on the big screen because of everything being crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah, you'll have to you'll have to come over once. Uh, yeah, once, <laughs> once we don't year. have to social distance and and check out this 4K cut. We'll that have a movie awesome. night, dude. That um that that reminded me of one other thing. I can't believe I 
forgot to say this. Obviously, where I, I talked about it on the last episode, I did that watch party for Night of the Living Dead, and I picked up the Criterion Collection Blu-ray of Night of the Living Dead, and I've obviously like watched that obsessively all week last week. So that's another thing I picked up recently, which is amazing. Not many films that I love <laughs> make it into their Criterion Collection, uh, but I was really, really glad they had a great release for Night of the Living Dead. But a lot of them do make it into... Arrow video, which yes. is sort of like the Criterion Collection. I once heard it called, well, uh, to be polite, I once heard it called the Criterion of Crap Films, <laughs> which I uh, which I really thought was funny. And honestly, I can really relate to that because I watch a lot of movies that people would probably describe that way, but they're just near and dear to my heart, man. I love them. Uh, yeah, Arrow puts out so many good, good releases of great movies, or at least what I think are great movies. Yeah, I mean, I I won't turn down a physical copy of something, but a lot of my favorite companies like Arrow and Scream Factory, Shout Factory, put out these awesome discs that are just packed with special features. Yeah, Grindhouse releasing is really good for that, too, just with a very limited (laughs) clientele, but they put out some great stuff. I might have a couple other discs in my library, but I'd have to check. Well, let me recommend, since I know you love it, let me recommend their release of Pieces. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to pick that one up. Because I do not own a physical copy of that, unfortunately. Seems like it might be time. And it comes with a copy of the soundtrack on CD as well. Oh, even better. Yeah. Okay. I'm adding that one to my wish list. Nice. And now, our feature presentation. So tonight we are talking about the 1986 classic Blue Velvet. And this has a 93% critic rating and an 88% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. But famously, Roger Ebert, one of my personal heroes, awarded Blue Velvet a 1 out of 4 in a scathing indictment of the film. It had a budget of $6 million and made $8.6 million at the box office. It's written and directed by David Lynch and stars Kyle MacLachlan, Isabella Rossellini, Dennis Hopper, and Laura Dern. Blue Velvet follows a university student, Jeffrey Beaumont, who returns to his hometown of Lumberton, North Carolina, represent, represent, after his father suffers a stroke. And while walking home from the hospital, Jeffrey finds a severed human ear in a field. He brings the ear to the police station and shows it to Detective John Williams, as one does when they find sure, an ear. Sure. And his curiosity gets the better of him. Instead of leaving the investigation in the hands of the police, he instead teams up with Sandy Williams, daughter of Detective Williams. Sandy tells Jeffrey that there's a connection between the ear and lounge singer Dorothy Valens, 
and Beaumont breaks into her apartment and gets pulled into the seedy underbelly of the seemingly idyllic Lumberton. So this was actually a fan pick. Yeah. My my sister, uh, Paula Rosine, picked this one. It's one of her favorite movies. And basically ever since The Celluloid Fiends started, ever since I started the podcast, she's been just bugging me to review this. And I, I love this film. So I, I don't know why it took this long, but I'm, I'm pretty jazzed to talk about it. And you, we'd, we'd both seen this one before. I had never seen it. Oh, so this was this was your first watch. It was. It was indeed. Yeah, I, I had never seen it. Yeah. OK, so I, I had seen it before and then I, I rewatched it this week. Uh, and then most recently before that, there was actually a 2020 screening of I think it was 2020. It may have been 2019, but there was a within the last year screening of it at the retro film series. Oh, interesting. I know that, you know, honestly, man, I don't even think I'd ever heard of this movie until um, our friend, our friend Kenny does this uh, on set cinema series where he goes to where movies were shot and shows them there. And he did one for the mutilator last year. Props to the mutilator. Great. We were talking about arrow earlier. They have a great release of the mutilator, but the, like the following day he was going to Wilmington to do one for uh, blue velvet. And that's, I think the, when he was telling me about it, it might've been the first time I'd ever heard of it. That was last summer. Right. Yeah, that I think that was last summer. Yeah. Uh, interesting. So have you how many other Lynch films or TV shows have you seen? So, you know, to be frank, like I, I have never been a big David Lynch guy. I remember back in college, um, my my roommate in college, we got along very well because he was an awesome dude and he was a real um, he was a real film buff. So when I was kind of coming into my own as a, as a film buff, he was also doing the same thing. So we'd watch all these movies together. And a lot of times we, uh, had similar tastes, but, but one thing was, I remember he, he wanted to watch, uh, Mulholland drive once. And I remember just watching it and just really disliking it. Um, just really, it was not for me. I tend to, not love movies that seem artsy for the sake of being artsy. And that's how that one struck me. Now that was long ago. So maybe that's an unfair assessment. So then I had seen Dune, which unpopular opinion, I actually enjoyed (laughs) his Dune. Uh, And then I watched most of Twin Peaks a while back, but somewhere along the way, it just kind of lost me and I never went back to it. And that's pretty much my only exposure with David Lynch until watching the movie uh, Blue Velvet this weekend. Okay. Yeah, I I I would call myself a Lynch fan, although I definitely haven't seen everything in his catalog. Uh, I tend to fall into the popular opinion. I'm not the biggest Dune fan. Yeah, I knew you weren't. <laughs> uh, I I think what happened was I watched the film very shortly after reading the book. Mm, I've never read and it. And it's a pretty solid book. It touches on it it's very hard sci-fi, but what makes it so successful is that it touches on a lot of different, very grounded subjects mm. like environmentalism and it's very sociopolitical. And so I think that's what kind of gives it its lasting power. And then the David Lynch version on paper should have been great. It's directed by Lynch. It stars Kyle MacLachlan, who's also in Blue Velvet. It has Sir Patrick Stewart. Right? I think Sting is in it. And it just... <laughs> I, I think I fell asleep during it. It was just it, it could not hold my attention. But I, I do tend to like a lot of his more bizarre f- 
films and shows. Like I loved Twin Peaks and uh, I'm, I'm a pretty big uh, fan of Blue Velvet, I guess, to somewhat give away my my future uh, score at the end of the episode. Uh, and one that I have not seen, though, is actually Mulholland Drive. But based on based on kind of what you were saying, I'm, I'm curious if that's one that I will really enjoy the way I do Blue Velvet. Based on what you were just saying, it seems like you might. And and honestly, I'm I, I hate to like judge something off of my opinion from that long ago. I mean, you know, people change. I hope that my tastes have grown or maybe they've devolved as a film fan um since then. And and I, I know who I am. I'm very lowbrow. I am aware that in general I'm never more pleased with a film than I am if zombies are eating people's brains or ninjas are throwing ninja stars or people are blowing each other up. Uh, so I, I'm a, I know who I am. Um, but yeah, I, I would be curious if you would like Mulholland Drive. And I would be curious if rewatching it, if I would like it. Who knows? I, I do kind of want to dig into what you were saying there about Blue Velvet being artsy for the, and, and weird for the sake uh, said, of being weird. Well, I said Mulholland Drive was. I, okay. Yeah. Uh, did you feel like Blue Velvet was? Yes, <laughs> yeah, I think I did. Yeah, you know, Mo, I have thought so much about this movie and like, what was I going to say about it? Because honestly, I don't know what to, to make of this movie. I was watching it and I don't know what to make of it. I was talking to somebody earlier and I was like, I don't even know. Did I? I don't even know if I liked this movie or not. I don't know. Um, I think that there is a lot to like about it. And I think it it hits on a lot of things that I do like, but at the same time there were there was a lot about it that really just wasn't for me. And so I'm going to say that in the end, this is not a film that I loved, um, but it is a very interesting film, and I think it's one that's definitely worthy of discussion. Yeah, so I, I think you're I think you're very correct on in that Blue Velvet is kind of. I would say a little obtuse. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but uh, I, I think it's a film that kind of requires maybe multiple viewings to really kind of appreciate and understand. Cause I think there's the thing about it is, and maybe I'm just pulling all this out of my ass, but there's a lot of symbolism and there are a ton of motifs throughout. And I, I think that kind of begins even from the opening shot where you see this fire truck driving by and there's this friendly looking firefighter cheerily waving from it. And you see these innocent small children crossing the street at a crosswalk. And there's this white picket fence and a tenderly cared for lawn. But then underneath that nearly perfect veneer is this disgusting side. And there are all these bugs and you see these just swarms of these bugs underneath the lawn and Jeffrey's father is watering that lawn and he you see him have that stroke and even from there it goes on to uh, Jeffrey finding that severed ear and I think it's supposed to be this kind of subversion of this idyllic quiet peaceful small town and kind of exposing its seedy underbelly but that was that was just kind of the take that i had no i think you're 100 percent right about that um i did i did upon reflection appreciate 
that, uh, especially that shot that you're talking about of like those kind of disgusting bugs under the ground. It was the kind of thing where at first, like, honestly, it, it almost struck me like that weird scene that everybody thinks of from Willy Wonka when he's on that boat and all of a sudden he just goes full creep and scares all the little children. And like, you see all this crazy, this crazy imagery for no reason. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like at first it struck me that way, but upon reflection, um, I, I agree with your take on that. Yeah, that and I do know that scene that you're talking about. From Everybody does it. Willy Wonka. It's it is burned into my memory. Yeah, I mean, wh- how did that get greenlit? I I, <laughs> I think people I think people back then honestly like to torture children, and that's how it got greenlit. Probably, <laughs> uh, pa- parents took their kids to see it multiple times in theaters because of that. Dude, um, I saw it many times on television as a kid. Many times. I'm almost surprised that part did not get cut on TV. Yeah. People didn't care. <laughs> I feel like lesser things have been cut. For sure. Uh, but yeah, I guess kind of digging back into that that whole dichotomy. Uh, this is so this is a neo-noir film. Yeah. And central to the noir genre is this idea of kind of a moral compass and, and lots of right. gray areas. And there, I, I think another motif kind of related to that di- uh, dichotomy between uh you know this very wholesome community and the uh, criminal activity going on uh, is kind of the light and darkness i think that played very heavily into blue velvet and i think he, at least i saw that in two different ways one was quite literally there there was a lot of juxtaposition between light and dark and even the lighting in certain scenes like the you know really dimly lit lounge where uh, uh, Dorothy Valens is Isabella Rossellini's character is singing. And then she's kind of cast in this uh, uh, blue light. And then there were those weird interludes with the candles blowing that kind of flame blowing in the wind. And I, 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 oh. I missed that almost entirely somehow. I, I don't know how that over, over I overlooked that, but the light and dark, I definitely saw. Yeah. Uh, and but so there were these interludes and you see this candle kind of just blowing in the wind back and forth. And I kind of interpreted that as Jeffrey Beaumont's character being caught in the balance of maintaining this wholesome goodness and, and then giving into kind of his darker temptations like this, uh, uh, sadomasochism that he is, uh, exhibiting when he is with Dorothy. Right. Right. Yeah. So that was, that was at least my take. And then, uh, yeah, I'm I'm really interested to hear your take on, on this, but I was reminded quite a bit of like some Hitchcock and even De Palma's body double, like rear window, because it almost seemed like the film, uh, like blue velvet was rewarding voyeurism. So you're going to make me confess again that my Hitchcock <laughs> viewing is, is more limited than I care to admit. Uh, and usually if I'm asked about that, I will deny it. But in this case, I, I can't. Uh, however, I am familiar enough with Rear Window to um, to know what you're talking about. Now, I've never seen Body Double, um, but I am familiar enough with Rear Window to know what you're talking about. And yeah, I would say that I definitely see that. The same um, voyeurism that, yeah, is exhibited and, and a big part of it. It's funny, when I was reading a, about this film... Uh, apparently one of the initial, like uh, this movie was kind of the coalescing of a lot of ideas that David Lynch had had. And one of them was he wanted to write a story about 
or no, he's, I think he just said it was one of his own personal fantasies. I don't know, but he wanted to write about um, sneaking into a girl's apartment to watch her, just to watch her. And then he discovers some kind of secret. So like the, the fantasy of like sneaking into some girl's apartment to watch her and then stumbling onto some kind of secret was one of the initial ideas that kind of prompted this movie um, to begin with. So I would definitely say that voyeurism kind of rides behind it. And also what you were saying about the noir, which I I was trying to, I don't want to interrupt your train of thought, but like the, the noir elements were one of the things about this movie that I really did like. I, um, I really like noir films, uh, particularly I think most of my exposure to noir films has been um, in sort of the hard-boiled detective type movies, um, The Big Sleep, The Maltese Falcon, things like that, um, Chinatown, I really like, it's more of a neo-noir, those kind of things. So the noir stuff, and particularly what you're talking about with the dark scenes, the the, the kind of dark cinematography is a real um, aspect of of noir films and so i did really see that and appreciate that aspect of this movie and that's something i like a lot too and i almost feel like there's a hint of giallo in the way that jeffrey beaumont and uh and and sandy both kind of insert themselves as the primary investigative unit because when you take a look at most noir films it's usually some kind of like you said, hard-boiled detective or a PI. And in this case, it's just a university student as well as a high school student. Yeah, I think probably a lot of that boils down to some common ancestry, right? I mean, you've already mentioned Hitchcock, and I know Hitchcock was a huge influence on Argento. Um, you know, I, I think that kind of that and like the, the whole Agatha, Agatha Christie is like one of the, the early... And all the way back to Poe, like a, a lot of mystery stories and different genres and subgenres of mystery have um, common ancestry. So I definitely saw a lot of kind of things that reminded me of Jalos. And I kept thinking, honestly, a lot about our, our recent discussions about Deep Red and other Jalos throughout watching this. Yeah, so that was that was something I, I think we both appreciate a lot, which uh, was well done. And I also think that was sort of a necessary element to kind of anchor the film a little bit because like you said it, it's it's a weird film and you kind of alluded to this earlier when you were talking about the uh, that kind of sick fantasy in that it's a very nightmarish movie mm. and I, I would not say that blue velvet is a horror film no i do think it has kind of horrific elements in it and there's actually a good quote from a film critic that I think kind of sums this up well. It was Mark Kermode. And uh, he apparently walked out of the film when he was first reviewing it and gave it a poor review, but then revisited it in 2016 and clarified, I didn't walk out on Blue Velvet because it was a bad film. I walked out on it because it was a really good film. The point was at the time I wasn't good enough for it. And I, I, did you feel like at any times like this was hard to watch? So, uh, yes, absolutely. It's one of my two criticisms of, of this film that I kind of feel hypocritical for making. Like the whole that was the weird thing about this, and that's why the takeaway that I kept getting is that you know we everybody knows, even though sometimes you don't want to admit that, like taste in movies is very subjective. And so the the criticisms that I would make of this movie. Um, I kept thinking, well, there's other movies that I like that do the same thing. 
But I will say, yeah, at times I found it very hard to watch. Um, a lot of the criticisms that this film was met with early on are criticisms that rang true with me. I don't want to sound like a prude. By the way, I should have done this earlier, but for people who have made it this far, obviously this is a mystery film. I shouldn't have to say it, I guess, but I will. We're going to give everything away when we talk about it. So if you've not seen this movie yet, it's a mystery movie. We're going to be giving away the plot as we go. Um, so just keep that in mind. So with that being said... That's the spoiler alert. And I will say there's a lot of like, there's a lot of sexual stuff that goes on in this that is hard to watch. And I think intentionally so, but just the kind of sleaziness of it was, it just made me uncomfortable. And once again, I suppose maybe that was, I guess that had to be the intention, but it just made me uncomfortable. And then I could think of other films that I liked that people probably thought were, would, would think are sleazy, but uh, yeah, that it definitely made me feel <laughs> like it was hard to watch at times. I definitely agree, and I absolutely believe that it was intentional. And I think it's in part to kind of make you as the viewer feel uncomfortable and also sort of analyze the moral compass of Jeffrey Beaumont, which is something and kind of put you into his shoes as he is sort of analyzing his own moral compass. Because I think that I think that's a huge part of the movie is just kind of exploring that uh, whole uh, rift between, you know, being drawn to the good, the light and the bad, the dark. And I think there was even a quote by Sandy about it was about the Rob, uh, like the birds, uh, which uh, I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but she mentions having this dream where the whole world has kind of given into darkness and despair. And then uh, all these Robins and, and the light come in and kind of save it. That's right. And she also said that the Robins represented love. So kind of love was coming in and driving out the darkness, but that's right. Exactly. So another place that you really see that struggle uh, is with being drawn to the darkness and the light uh, is with Jeffrey Beaumont's relationships. So when he, he initially breaks into Dorothy's apartment, he ends up, uh, he ends up sleeping with her. I think he did that. Did he do that on the first visit? I can't remember, well, but he, he ends was, up doing that eventually. Yeah. The first visits when he's pretending to be the, um, the, the bug man. And then the second one is when he breaks in and sneaks into her closet. And then, uh, I can't remember if that's the time that he actually sleeps with her, but they cert I don't think so, but they certainly get, they certainly have some, uh, there's a fellatio situation. Oh, yes. And it's it's very, it's very sexual. It's very violent. It's very, uh, it, there's a lot of sexualized violence and it's very uncomfortable to watch. And then you juxtapose that with the relationship that he has with, with Sandy and how it's very wholesome and, you know, they're, uh, it's almost kind of this, depiction of like a 50s relationship they're you know going down to the the malt shop to to have a sandwich and uh and then even at the end when he and when he does ultimately end up with sandy you see that that bird a light on the window and it's devouring a bug and it almost seemed to say like love had won at least according to sandy's dream yeah, and I took it that that bug was calling back to the bugs at the very beginning of the film that we already referenced that represented like the seedy underbelly. 
Yep, I, I think you're absolutely correct. And then even kind of thinking back on it, what you just mentioned about when Jeffrey breaks in uh, <laughs> under the guise of being the exterminator. Again, yeah, right. there's yeah. there's that bug motif. Yeah, right. It just continues to pop up. I also read that the character that they call Yellow uh, Yellow Coat, or the Yellow Man, that they call the Yellow Man, I read somewhere that people said that him having a yellow jacket was sort of a callback to a yellow jacket, like a type of hornet, you know, yellow jackets. And while I'm talking about the Yellow Man, can I just say congrats to him for being one of the only people in the film that seemed to have a legitimate North Carolina accent? Like When he, <laughs> when he started talking, I was like, all right, buddy, I know you. Yeah, you know that that's a really good point. Uh, that was the I think the one thing that one of the things that like really took took me out of it, even with all the kind of weird dreamlike nightmarish elements, was uh, that they didn't it, have they didn't have North Carolina accents. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, that's okay. I I always love any movie that's that's shot here in North Carolina. It always gets a few bonus points just just for that. So I mean, hey, I loved that. And uh, you were kind of touching uh, earlier about uh, about how this is a very just weird film through and through, which I 100 yes. percent agree with. It's just from the onset, it's very surrealist. Yes. And uh, I think you had mentioned that you felt like some of the dialogue was a little awkward. I think, to be honest, I, I know that David Lynch is a very respected filmmaker and so I, I i am fully aware that this could have just been intentional artistic license but for me i think the dialogue in this movie was maybe maybe the thing that kind of turned me off the least like i i wrote about three quarters of the way through the film in my notes i wrote i'm just not a fan of this dialogue that's what i wrote but i um, <laughs> the first one i noticed was when jeffrey and sandy are kind of uh walking like when he first kind of meets sandy which it was not clear to me whether he knew sandy already or was just meeting her but i guess you get the impression that he kind of knew her from back when he went to high school with her but um they go to look at dorothy's building but what's weird is they never really focus on dorothy's building they go up she goes there it is and then it quickly f- flips to another scene of them walking and he says something about a kid that he knew that had a really long tongue. And she's like, what happened to him? And he's like, "Mm, I don't really know. And then he shows her this chicken walk and just the whole thing was just so weird and didn't seem, I don't know, to me didn't really seem to be going anywhere. Another part that really was weird to me is when he takes her to the bar and he says the word Heineken a billion times. It seemed like a product placement. He's like, "Mm, this is a Heineken. I love Heineken. Heineken's good. Do you like Heineken? I've never had a Heineken, Heineken. I was just like, why are they saying Heineken over and over again? But I think the part that really revealed to me my problem with the dialogue in this movie, and once again, this is where I think it could have been an artistic choice, is after, towards the end of the movie, it all kind of blows up that that Jeffrey has been having this um, affair with Dorothy Valens, the singer, and Sandy finds out, and she like slaps him, and she's so mad. And then the next scene, she calls him, and all is forgiven, and they have this really melodramatic conversation about their love for one another, and and I was just sitting there going, this is so melodramatic, and to me, I just did not like that dialogue, but I, I could see that maybe the melodrama was an intentional artistic choice, it just wasn't for me. I 100% agree with you about that, uh, la- that part in the third act, yeah. when... He when Jeffrey finally comes clean about kind of having that affair with uh, Dorothy and then Sandy just kind of forgives him Uh, right away. 
Uh, although I think it, I do think it's it was intentional because I think it was once again supposed to, and maybe I'm just kind of reading uh, what I want into it, but I do feel like it was intentional and supposed to kind of posit Sandy as this very wholesome character and and kind of naive, and I think it was kind of playing up her naivete. Mm. And kind of showing that, okay, so she is upset, but she believes so much that love can conquer despair that she's willing to overlook Jeffrey's dark side and believes that that will, that if she overlooks his dark side, that will help him to overcome it. Yeah, I could see that. I I can see that. So that was sort of my take on the situation. I actually, uh, hot take but i actually really liked a lot of the awkward dialogue because to me it seemed intentional Uh, especially uh, i think one one of my favorite scenes was at the beginning when jeffrey brings the ear in (laughs) and detective williams just doesn't think anything's wrong he just says well where did you find it and it's just that conversation is so matter of fact and then he even just reaches in the bag pulls out the ear and he's just like yep it's an ear, no gloves, yeah. nothing. So I don't have my unedited notes sitting in front of me that I took when I was actually watching the movie. I pared them down for this, but some somewhere in my notes, I wrote, I wrote, cop has a weird reaction to that ear. Like I, I was watching it thinking, oh, oh, is this guy, is he a bad guy? Is he in on, is he in on whatever's going on? Uh, the whole time, actually, I kept expecting because of his, his reactions to stuff. I kept expecting uh, the, sandy's dad to be to turn out to be in on the the bad guy stuff it's interesting you say that because the first time i watched this i totally thought he was especially his reaction at the end of the film and when when jeffrey brings up uh all this evidence and starts showing the different pictures of the well-dressed man and the yellow man and and kind of tells everything about frank and Detective Williams just uh, kind of seems a little dismissive and says something to the effect of, well, have you told anyone else? Well, does Sandy know about this? And that kind of makes him seem a little guilty. And then, of course, when Jeffrey shows back up to pick up Sandy, the partner, the yellow man who is in cahoots with with Frank is right there. And the dad kind of gives him this sort of seemingly threatening pep talk. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It threw me for sure. I I really kept up until the very end expecting it to be revealed that he was a bad guy. Yeah, I thought that was going to be the case. And I I loved that element because I thought it kind of doubled down on a lot of the noir elements, which at at times seem really strong and then at other times seem a little evasive. I think just because even though technically Blue Velvet is, I would categorize it as a neo-noir film, it just has this weird dreamlike quality throughout the whole thing that I think sometimes detracts from the noir side because it just feels very unique. I believe that it is, it is certainly a surrealist's take on the, on the noir genre. Like it's a neo-noir, but it is a surrealist's take on that genre. So pretty much all the noir elements are there. They're just played through this, this very unique surreal lens. Yeah, and there's even some quote by Jeffrey, which I think kind of sums up the uh, kind of those different motifs that we were talking about and that exploration of 
kind of good versus evil that goes on. Uh, and he says, I've been seeing something that was always hidden. Right. Yeah. So I, I really like that. And I think it kind of sums up the surrealism of the film very well. Uh, because it's almost like watching some film through like a funhouse mirror. Everything just seems distorted the entire time. Yeah, it, it definitely does. And and once again, that's one of those things that I, I knew was intentional. I mean, a lot of the stuff, even some of the stuff that maybe I didn't care for in the film, I knew was intentional. I, I don't think it was done by mistake. Um, it's just, you know, just different artistic choices. But the, I, I can definitely see what you're saying. It, you know, that's that's the whole thing, right? That it, it's, it's played out in a very dreamlike way. So sometimes things seem to be missing or they seem to not make sense. Uh, and that's that's just that's just surrealism. You know, that was that's just the style for this film. Yeah, everything is just super off kilter. Mm -hmm. So with that, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will keep discussing Blue Velvet. From the mind of David Lynch comes a modern day masterpiece. So startling, so provocative, so mysterious that it will open your eyes to a world you have never seen before. and warm a memory through the years and I still can see blue velvet Hey neighbor Here I come You got about one second to live buddy Through my Hey guys, we're back and we're discussing the 1986 David Lynch classic Blue Velvet. So I, I just referred to this as a classic and I did earlier. Do you feel like this is a cult classic? Oh, big time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no denying that. I mean, I would say, especially, I would say this is a movie that was made to be a cult classic. I mean, it's it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. But it is a movie with a lot going on. And if you look at the backstory of it, you know, when it came out, it was met with both considerable critical praise and critical backlash. Uh, and over the course of time has come to be accepted as as a really great classic film. I mean, it, it, it is on the AFI top 10 mysteries list. It is on that. I know we talked about the Rio Bravo one recently was nominated. This one is on is on the list now. And I think it was AFI as well talked about a few other uh, elements in the film. I think I want to say the character of Frank Booth portrayed by Dennis Hopper was up there as one of the top 10 villains or something like that. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And actually I kind of want to dig a little bit into some of the characters in this film because there are some very strange characters. Oh, uh, sure. kind of fitting with that theme of the entire movie being weird. Yes. So Frank is is definitely one of the more strange 
characters in this movie. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, he has Dorothy's kid as well as her husband kidnapped. Mm-hmm. And he is the one who actually severs or one of his henchmen, but he is responsible for the severed ear, which turns out to be Dorothy Valens, her husband's ear. Yeah. At one point, he inter- he refers to himself as Van Gogh. It made me wonder if, if he if Frank knows about Van Gogh and knows that Van Gogh did it to his own ear. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, that's exactly how I read that. Yeah, I, I saw that as Frank referring to Mr. Valens. Do we? I can't remember his name. I don't know that ever. Uh, I guess it does give a name, but I just can't remember it. Uh, but yeah, so I, I took that as him kind of referencing that. They cut, they cut his ear off. Mm. Uh, and then uh, another... So one thing that I thought was hilarious was Frank has this kind of posse of these very clearly sinister uh, characters it's who kind of roll in his posse. Yeah, his <laughs> goons. And one of them was Brad Dorif. Yes, I had to pause it partway through and be like, is that Brad Dorif? And, and it is. <laughs> and I mean, he, so... If you walk in in the middle of this movie and you see <laughs> Brad Dorif standing there, you automatically know, okay, anyone he's associated with is definitely a villain. Yeah, I know. Like, I was like, is that Chucky's voice I'm hearing? And I had to pause and look it up, and it was. <laughs> yeah, I feel like anything he's in, he's always a villain. Uh, but then, so one, and one of them, uh, Jack Nance, the one who was Paul, and he was wearing a fedora. Uh, so he ended up falling uh, onto this list of frequent collaborators hmm. with David Lynch. So of the different uh, actors in this film, Kyle MacLachlan, Laura Dern, Jack Nance, and Francis Bay were all in multiple uh, Lynch films and shows. So Kyle MacLachlan was in, of course, Dune which came out, uh, I think it was two years prior, 84. And that was just a huge flop. Right. Uh, and, and then Blue Velvet, and then, of course, Twin Peaks. Laura Dern was in Blue Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Industrial Symphony Number no. 1, Inland Empire, and Twin Peaks The Return. Jack Nance was in Dune, Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Twin Peaks, Lost Highway, and then Francis Bay was in Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks. Yeah. Yeah, I, so did, honestly, man, I really liked. Sorry, I really liked Kyle MacLachlan in in this and in Twin Peaks. I, I do think he does a really good job. I, I really liked him in, in Twin Peaks, and so I was glad to see him in this. <laughs> Straight up, I had forgotten that he was <laughs> in Dune. It's been so long since I've seen it. But then once I saw him, I was like, oh yeah, right. I tried to forget that he was in Dune, <laughs> and by that I mean I tried to forget that I watched Dune, but I was unsuccessful. One bit of trivia that I read was that the role of Jeffrey was originally offered to Val Kilmer. Mm-hmm. And he turned the role of Jeffrey Beaumont down, describing the script that he read as pornography. Honestly, man, I mean, not a shock to me. I, I Like I said, I, I think there's a lot of stuff. And then I see when I, I read that from the show notes you sent me earlier, and then it said that he, he, he also claims he would have done the version that finally made it to the screen. Part of me wonders from reading that if it's not just that he saw this and was like, nope, too dirty, don't want to do it. And then it was successful. So he was like, no, I would have done that. You know what I mean? Like kind of like a little bit of hindsight going on. 
Uh, but who knows? But yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't surprise me that somebody would describe it that way. There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of really wild stuff in this, let's just say. Yeah. And then similarly, Molly Ringwald was apparently offered the role of Sandy, but her mother objected because of the graphic content. Laura Dern was good in this, but you know, I could have definitely seen Molly Ringwald in that role. Like, I think she would have done that very well. I think she would have too. I think she would have been a, a really solid Sandy. I cannot no. see Val Kilmer as Jeffrey. No. In fact, I can't really see anyone but Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah. As Jeffrey. Val Kilmer's one of those dudes, too. It's always funny to me. Like, I mean, maybe he could surprise me. I mean, my dude transforms himself for one of the greatest performances of all time in Tombstone as Doc Holliday. But it's, yes. I mean, there's there's a lot of Val Kilmer roles that I really like, but I, I don't see him in this movie. No. I'm going to plug The Ghost in the Darkness real quick because okay. I I love that movie. I think it definitely has its flaws, but uh, I just have very fond memories of watching that. It's a good Val Kilmer flick. I've never seen it. I was just talking. So me and, and two of our mutual friends, Tarl and Donnie, uh, had like a virtual movie party the other night. And we watched this movie, The Edge. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Um, it's like a movie where... Um, Sir Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin uh, get kind of, and, and other people get trapped out in the wilderness and they're like fighting this bear. And anyway, somehow we got to talking about the ghost in the darkness and uh, I, I've never seen it, but they, they were both saying it was good. I have not even heard of that movie, the edge. I might have to check that one out. Well, you may have to, because I think I might, I think I might suggest it for a future episode. <laughs> I would be very down for that. <laughs> something, something else I thought was really kind of, hilarious is that the word fuck pops up 56 times in this movie it is a two-hour movie so i guess that's you know sort of a reasonable runtime but 56 yeah that's quite a lot and all but once it is said by frank booth yeah somebody somebody really needed to wash his mouth out with soap yeah uh and and i guess that kind of brings me back to what you were saying earlier about there's some intense stuff in this movie yeah especially especially the character of frank um played by dennis hopper who is great at that kind of role just to be honest he he's really good in that kind of role he really shines in that just like really off kilter animated role i think yeah i in fact uh this is an incredibly well cast film and i really thought Dennis Hopper just gave a tour de force performance because he really just seems completely unhinged. Yeah. And <laughs> yes. he he goes from being really violent and confrontational to being really uh lighthearted and, and kind of silly the next moment. And you just he just seems like he's about to explode. Yeah, if I didn't know time. any better, I would think he had some issues. Uh, oh he definitely had some issues (laughs) and uh in fact one thing that i thought was absolutely hilarious i don't know if you knew this going in but uh this was a dino de laurentis production yeah so he actually created the de laurentis entertainment group deg studios specifically because apparently no one would touch this film yeah, no, I di- I knew that Dino De Laurentiis had been uh had been involved in it, um, but I didn't know that about him creating his own his own company, um, specifically for that. So that was pretty interesting to me. And also, somewhere in the film notes, did you say 
was was that film group based out of Wilmington or, or only, I guess, for the duration of this picture? Uh, no, so they actually were based out of Wilmington, and that's wow. why there is a very rich cinematic history in North Carolina. Right, yeah, right. Uh, and then I think even Evil Dead 2 was it was shot in North Carolina, and I think that was a Daily Orientis production as well. I did not know that Evil Dead 2 was shot in North Carolina. That's interesting. Yeah, at least I know it, some parts of it were. Uh, but that is one of the, the contributing factors um, for North Carolina's uh, cinema history. And I saw several years back, I want to say it was maybe 2014, there's a an excellent exhibit over at the North Carolina History Museum about film in North Carolina. Man, I would have, I, should, I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah, it, I think the tagline was like 100 years, 3,000 films or something like that. Cool. And they even featured the ear, the prosthetic ear from oh, Blue Velvet. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. So it was pretty, it was pretty sweet. And they, they talked about, uh, like, I know what you did last summer. That yeah. was a, that was a great exhibit. I'm sure they, I'm sure they overlooked the mutilator, which is a crime. I, you know, I don't recall anything about the mutilator, but at the time that I went to that exhibit, I don't think I'd actually seen the mutilator then, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, one of, it's one of our great North Carolina films. It really is. And, uh, I think at least last I checked, you can watch it on Amazon prime. Yeah, I think so too. And, and honestly, like that movie is a lot, is a blast <laughs> straight up. If you love slasher movies, that movie's a blast. It's it's worth buying the error release of that, which, for sure. which I have. And is a, it is amazing. It's a movie that I really love. I really love that movie. And the error release will open a whole new way of watching it. Oh, yes. It, it gives the entire history of the film, which is kind of cool. One story that I thought kind of was neat about the filming of Blue Velvet. Isabella Rossellini recalled that people were really excited that David Lynch was filming in Wilmington, North Carolina. And people came out with blankets and picnic baskets and they brought their grandmas and their small children. And this was for, it's that scene at the end when uh, Dorothy Valens shows up naked, just completely naked. Yeah. And so people stayed anyways. And apparently she apologized to them in a loud voice, (laughs) knowing that they were going to be upset. So, uh, Apparently, after David Lynch called cut, um, someone came over with a robe for her to wear and everyone had left. And then the next day, there was a notice from the police that said they would not be given any more permits to shoot in the streets of Wilmington, North Carolina. Yeah, I found I find that hilarious. I read that, too. Uh, So weird. And I mean, I guess maybe people didn't know what kind of movie they were making. But man, wouldn't that be a weird little picnic dinner with the fam? right like, yeah just so bizarre and what i guess what cracked me up was also that seems like it could have been a scene from this film oh yeah for sure <laughs> yes right the, the people out with their picnic baskets watching this woman nude and like beat all to pieces like because that's the other thing she's not just naked she's been like beat like beaten severely uh when she's all beat up when she comes out i mean i'm sure that if there were kids around that was probably pretty traumatic i also find it interesting do you know i mean i guess probably you don't know but uh, it would be interesting to know at what point into shooting this was that they were denied any more permits to shoot in the streets i wonder if they just couldn't do it anymore or if they did what lucio fulci used to do which is just do it anyway and hope they don't get caught like fulci shot a lot of his stuff in america his externals and they they wouldn't apply for film permits they would just go somewhere and shoot set up and shoot until the cops ran them off
or, or even the the night of the comet kind of thing uh, right. where just get up at 5 a.m yeah. or something and shoot uh yeah so i'm, I'm actually unclear uh how far into the film i would guess kind of at the end because yeah. that scene is in the third act and i would guess that it's it seemed like probably there were a lot of interior shots and maybe even some kind of I don't know, studio or, or soundstage shots, too. Right. So, yeah, I, I guess they probably had most things wrapped up and, and maybe so. just even went gorilla. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> but clearly they they were able to wrap up uh, yeah. filming right. and 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 get this put together as a as an entire film. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I thought those were just some weird casting choices, though, and I was curious like if you thought anyone was poorly cast or if that anyone could really be recast because frankly i i couldn't really think of a ton of people i do think that molly ringwald could have fit as as sandy but um i don't i don't really think so i mean i think that kyle mclaughlin was perfect as jeffrey um he did a great job i mean because that character is going to have to be kind of quirky and odd you know weirdly i could have seen john saxon as the girl's police father i feel like maybe in my head he's just sort of typecast as that kind of role after after night of living i mean after a nightmare on elm street um but i could have seen john saxon in that role um, and even Black christmas yeah dude oh yeah right he's a similar role in that too john saxon rules um yeah. but so so i could have seen him in that minor role um Laura, I thought Laura Dern did a good job. I do think she did a good job, but I could I could have seen somebody like a Molly Ringwald also in that role. Laura Dern's character was a bit odd to me, but I don't think it was I don't think it was poorly played. I don't think it was poorly acted. Nor do I. In fact, I think Laura Dern did a phenomenal job with that yeah. role. I think the writing could have been a little bit stronger for that character of Sandy. And I yeah. get that it's kind of like what I what I mentioned earlier. I, I think she's supposed to be like this just pure embodiment of uh, naivete and, and good and kind of believing in the power of love. Yeah. But at times I felt like her character was kind of under like underdeveloped and just not written strong enough. Yeah. And I thought that they kind of thrust her. They, they kind of strangely thrust her into scenes where she didn't seem to have any real function. Like a lot of times when they were going over to like do some detective stuff at, uh, at Dorothy Valen's apartment building, it's like Jeffrey would be really insistent that Sandy go with him. But then when they got there, he would just be like, all right, you stay outside or something like that. Like, like then she just wouldn't go. Like she just wouldn't do anything. She would be like, I got to go. I got to leave as soon as they got there. And it, I was always like, well, then why are, why are you here? It just always kind of seemed like they were kind of inserting her into scenes where she didn't have a lot to do. And I know that's probably because once again, they were trying to like symbolically do a contrast between her character and Dorothy Valen's character and the relationships between the two. I understand that there was probably some symbolism there, but at times she seemed to be plugged into places in the narrative where I don't know that that they did a great job of giving her a, a function in that scene. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair take. Uh, and I, I liked her, the idea of her character a lot. I, I, I loved Laura Dern's performance. Yeah. But I do think I would have liked to see maybe her and uh, I would have liked to see Sandy and Jeffrey kind of teaming up for a little bit more detective yeah, work right. in the film. Because I thought that was one of the most uh, fascinating parts of the movie and i think their relationship could have been developed a bit more 
if not even just to kind of juxtapose that with Jeffrey's relationship with Dorothy, which was fleshed out quite a bit. And, and, um, and, you know, um, Sandy was, was game like from the jump (laughs) to get in on some of this stuff. I mean, he had to kind of convince her some, but she was kind of always interested and willing to go along with these little jaunts. So. Yeah. Uh, Cause even from the beginning, she is the one who kind of plants that seed of, Go and and does the detective work of going to uh, see what the deal is with Dorothy and and makes that connection because she her she said her bedroom was above her father's office and she heard right. him talking about it. I think she comes to regret that decision later, <laughs> though. Once Jeffrey kind of gets obsessed with this whole thing, yeah, I absolutely think she kind of regretted that decision. Uh, although I guess it sort of worked out for her in the end. Sure. A little bit. Uh, one, so one scene that I thought was just really uh, bizarre was the scene where Frank beats up mm-hmm. Jeffrey. Yeah. Because so he's beating him up and then uh, Frank just loves the song In Dreams by Roy Orbison. So he puts that on and there is this uh, girl from uh, like a brothel. Yeah. And while Frank is just wailing on poor Jeffrey, she just hops out of the car and starts dancing on yes. the top of the car. Yes. Very strange. <laughs> and and the way Frank is acting with Jeffrey is very strange. That whole scene, like, it's just, yes, I feel, uh, Frank's a strange dude, man. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, he was an interesting one. Yeah, but once again, talking about the acting choices, I don't know if I said this a minute ago, but I, I don't know that anybody besides Hopper could have done that. Yeah, I, I struggle to think of anyone who could have really delivered that sort of nuanced performance. Yeah. And, I mean, and, and gone from such polar opposites. Yeah. So quickly real... and and so convincingly. Yeah, it's a real Dennis Hopper role for sure. For sure. Yeah. And I think it really kind of showed the uh, the prowess of his acting very well. And I feel like I read that he 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 really wanted that role. I think he was super into it. I read that as well, and he even had some kind of quote where I think he said, "I was born to play Frank" or something yeah. like that. So he was super into that, <laughs> which is that's sort of a weird admission. Am I the only person who mostly thinks of him from Texas Chainsaw Two? <laughs> so when I, when I think of him, I actually think of uh, Basquiat, which we actually did in um, an episode earlier. Uh, it was, I think it was one of our earlier episodes about that. Yeah. And he plays, it was uh, Andy Warhol's assistant in that film. That's one I haven't seen. That is a great movie. Highly recommend that one. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I think I would guess most people probably, I don't know what most people probably think of Easy him from. Rider. Easy Rider is what most people probably think of him from. You, you think even more so than Blue Velvet? Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, you know, Easy Rider... Maybe it's because once again, <laughs> another episode where I'll talk about my dad. But my dad was super into like choppers and motorcycles when he was younger, so he would always talk about Easy Rider, even though I don't really know if he even liked that movie that much. But he would talk about it a lot. I mean, Easy Rider is a very famous film. Yeah, I would probably guess a lot of people would know him from Easy Rider. Maybe not later generations. Maybe not our generation, but I think he certainly is well known from Easy Rider. Yeah, I would guess it's probably a, a split between that and and Blue Velvet, but. But the people yeah. who know what's up, they know about Texas Chainsaw too. <laughs> hey, 
That's a classic right there. Yeah, it's canon film. Oh, you know, if it had canon uh, splashed in front of it, you knew it was going to be good. You said it best, brother. I agree. Say, uh, you know, and the same thing with Orion. Yeah. Yep. Same. Didn't they break bring back the Orion kind of like uh, logo and everything at the first of the new Child's Play movie? I'm pretty sure they did. They did, and I think that even ha- uh, they even brought that back for I could be wrong, but for the new Invisible Man film. Oh, I didn't see it. I heard it was good. Oh, it, it's phenomenal. Okay, I need to check that it, out. It is absolutely incredible. It, it provides a really fresh take on kind of a classic tale, which yeah. I which I liked a lot. I, I really like the uh, the Claude Rains version. Uh, so, and and so. Can getting back to Blue Velvet a little bit, we we kind of talked uh, some about the music. Yeah. And I, I know we're both super into soundtracks, so right. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on the music throughout and the soundtrack. Yeah, it was really good. I mean, I liked it. Uh, I told you earlier, I mean, I've definitely had the the song Blue Velvet stuck in my head even at times when I didn't want it to be for days now, ever since I watched the movie. So that certainly wasn't, was a great choice. I mean, it was, you know, I thought the song blue velvet was a really great choice and really, uh, did its, did its thing in this movie very well. Um, the score by Angelo Badalamenti. Did I say that right? I hope I did. Um, I really liked a lot. Um, one thing that I always really like about a lot of, neo-noir films particularly is the kind of like jazzy score the jazzy music i really like that a lot there were a few moments in this movie when i thought the score was almost kind of too on the nose noir sounding music to where it almost sounded like a parody of noir music which maybe it was intentional uh there were a few moments that i thought that but overall really really liked the music in this one a lot yeah i I thought the soundtrack was absolutely lovely and kind of reinforce that noir vibe which was i i think much needed just because of how kind of off kilter the film itself gets from kind of what we were talking about the the lighting the story the characters even i thought the cinematography oftentimes is kind of strange oh yeah uh, for sure in in the way that it'll kind of at, at times put you into the perspective of one of the characters like Jeffrey kind of staring out of the closet and then kind of other times appears as if you're kind of a detached observer. Uh, So I I loved the way that it really solidified that noir, the noir theme. Uh, I thought the actual song blue velvet was really just lovely. And uh, like you, I've had it stuck in my head. I'll just kind of hear it pop up (laughs) occasionally. Uh, and I, I thought the Roy Orbison you know, in dreams uh, moments were pretty good because that is that's sung at the brothel. Yes, and then later on, just moments. Yeah, it's just really weird. And yes. uh, I actually I read earlier that Roy Orbison did not want in dreams used, and I I think Lynch found a way to incorporate it as sort of a loophole. Nice. <laughs> I can't remember what the what the loophole was, but I thought that was really hilarious because funny. 
It seems like a lot of people had, from looking at the screenplay, had various objections. Like De- Delorientis had to create his own yeah. studio to make this film. I mean, you could see it though, right? I mean, you could see reading this screenplay and be like, "No thanks." Like, <laughs> I just right. feel like, especially since, as you said earlier, David Lynch was kind of coming out of the flop of Dune, right? I mean, he, you know, so he had like his most recent thing had been a had been a failure. Yeah, there was a lot writing on this movie. Right. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot writing on it. He t- he took a risk, and he did not go with something mainstream. No. no. <laughs> he was okay with that risk. I know. Okay and you know, I risk. respect that. That's a bold choice, and I respect that. Yeah, I I agree. I think even if you hate this movie, you gotta you gotta respect that because you know you know what it reminds me of. It reminds me of like something John Carpenter would have done. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You know, he would not have cared if his last movie flopped. Yeah. He would have continued on to the next one and made the film that he wanted to see. Especially since most of Carpenter's, a lot of Carpenter's films have flopped to start with and then went on to be real cult classics. I mean, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I respect that, man. I respect somebody who has an artistic vision and, and just go and just puts it out there. Yeah. And Lynch definitely had an artistic vision for this one. For sure. And he had a, and he had an artistic vision that over, you know, some directors are commercial directors and they make commercial films and then other directors have a very signature style and you can like it or you can not like it, but you, you, they leave their mark on cinema by having a very distinctive style. And I would say that David Lynch is certainly that. Yeah. 100%. I mean, there's a reason that we now have the the descriptor Lynchian. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because of the impact that he has had. Sure. Uh, so with that, why don't we rate this? Okay. I'm going to let you go first. Okay. Well, that's cruel of you. I have been, I struggled a lot with how I was going to rate this movie. I tend to try to appreciate a movie for what it is. Um, but as I said earlier, this was a movie that I I really respected. There were a lot of things I liked about it. The music was great. The cinematography was beautiful. I really liked the noir elements, but in a way it just, in a lot of ways, wasn't, wasn't for me. Like it just, it just, it wasn't for me in a lot of ways. And so my initial reaction was to put it straight down the middle on a five point scale, give it a 2.5. But at the same time, we've had a lot to say about this movie. We've had a lot to discuss about this movie. And as you said earlier, it's a movie that if you enjoy it, you could probably watch multiple times and continue to delve into the layers of the film. So while it may not have been for me, I respect it as a, as a, as a great film. And so I'm going to raise it from the 2.5 that I was originally going to give it. And I'm going to put it at at three. I'm going to put it at three stars for me. And so, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you just said there. Uh, I absolutely love this film. I, I went in having watched it a few times before and really enjoyed my rewatch of it. Uh, it's one of those films that at times kind of is very difficult to watch just because a lot of the uh, the intensity of it. But I, to me, that means it's a very powerful film and and kind of leaves you with a lot to think about and mull over and i as someone who's just a a hardcore cinephile and loves unpacking films there is a lot in this movie to 
uh, kind of grapple with and, and especially all that symbolism and the different motifs and kind of the, all the, the light and the dark. And even, even if you strip all of that away, it's just a very kind of pretty film to watch and it's just very intentional. So I'm, I'm going to have to give this one a, a four and a half. Uh, that's fair. Yeah. It's one that I definitely, uh, ha- I have revisited and will continue to. I don't know that it's one that I would watch uh, every year necessarily. I don't think it's like a, a Jaws for me, but it is definitely one that I, I keep in the in the regular rotation. Yeah, it was, and, and you know, it was a lot of fun to discuss. I mean, and I think that's, I think that says something about a film. If you know, if, whether or not it was something that I necessarily really loved, it was very fun to to discuss it and break it down. And, I, and I'm really glad we did this one. Um, and I, I think that just sort of speaks to the movie overall. Like this, yes. I think was a movie made for cinephiles. Yes, I think so it, too. it's not necessarily going to appeal to all cinephiles, but it's one that I think if you're into movies, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to discuss and you can at least respect it, even if you think it's a one, a one, a one out of four. Yeah, I mean, this is by no. Well, I didn't. I, you know, I thought it was a, uh, for me personally a two point five, but a three overall because it is great in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's not a popcorn film by any means. You know, it's not something you no. watch for fun on a Friday night with the fam. Uh, but it is something worthy of discussion. I will say, in kind of wrapping up my thoughts about it, uh, I had written down two quotes from different um, film critics that I kind of that kind of summed up how I felt about it. Um, so I, I think uh, Paul Atanasio of the Washington Post at the time uh, kind of spoke some of my feelings about the movie when he said uh, he had complimented the visuals and he had complimented the score, and then he said Lynch isn't interested in communicating. He's interested in parading his personality. The movie doesn't progress or deepen. It just gets weirder and to no good end. That's a little harsher than I would be, but the thing about um, his personality maybe being too much of the focus kind of summed up, I think, some of of what threw me about the film. However, the other quote that I wanted to say is one that you actually spoke to earlier, which was from Mark Commode, who who had famously walked out on the film and gave it a poor review. And then later he said, I didn't walk out on Blue Velvet because it was a bad film. I walked out on it because it was a really good film. And the point was, at the time, I wasn't good enough for it. So in closing on this movie for me, I will say that while it wasn't something that I really loved this time, I would like to think that maybe one day I will come around and realize that at this point, I just simply wasn't good enough for it. Uh, and it's kind of it's it's really fascinating what that one uh, review said about Lynch being interested in parading his personality around because uh, Kyle MacLachlan and David Lynch have actually worked together quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, and uh, apparently MacLachlan, according to Wikipedia, uh, there that the article there on the list of David Lynch's frequent collaborators, uh, Kyle MacLachlan has even been described as a sort of on-screen incarnation of Lynch's own persona. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So I, I think, I think that was kind of a, a neat old tidbit. Um, yeah. I, I, I had a blast uh, talking about this, about this movie. Um, yeah. yeah. Cause I've, I've as, ma- as many times as I've watched, I don't really think I've gotten to just sit down and like have a conversation and, and kind of delve into it and dissect it. It's definitely one that needs to be dissected for sure. Oh, yes. All right. Well, that is our show for the night. 
Uh, thank you guys for listening. If you haven't already done so again, check us out wherever you listen to podcasts uh, and leave us a rating and a review on iTunes because it helps us out a lot. And go ahead and subscribe. You can follow us at Celluloid Fiends on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. You can check me out at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. You can read my film reviews at cupofmo.com. And I write about tech stuff over at techuplife.com. Yeah. And so in closing here, I'll say, you know, if you like what we're doing here, another thing you can do that really helps us out is to just tell a friend, you know, recommend this, recommend this to a friend. It doesn't even have to be a friend who's a hardcore movie buff. I know several people have told me they're listening to it and kind of discovering new films, which we love. Uh, So recommend it to a friend if you think they'd like it. For me personally, once again, this is Wes Clifton. I, um, you can find me on Instagram at Cliff Weston. You can find my fiction writing at wdclifton.wordpress.com. I have a few things coming up uh, this month and, and uh, the following month. So definitely keep an eye on my website for some new stuff coming out very soon. Um, another thing that I did want to plug as we're leaving, um, I'm also a musician and I have a song that's coming out on an upcoming compilation. It's called songs from indoors. Uh, it was, uh, the idea was some of my friends who I've played music with over the years when all, when kind of the world shut down due to the pandemic, uh, a lot of musicians were kind of forced to get creative with how they were going to continue their, their music. And so, uh, they got a bunch of musicians from all over the country to, it doesn't necessarily have to be a song that you wrote during the pandemic or about the pandemic, but just a song that was an original song that you recorded at home during the pandemic. So they're putting it out in two volumes. Uh, My song will be, I think track number four, but I'm not sure on songs from indoors volume one, which comes out on July 10th. And then there'll be a volume two later in the month. And you can check that out at songs from indoors.bandcamp.com. I am pretty jazzed to check that one out. Yeah, and it is a free it is a free compilation, so uh, you know you should be able to check it out, uh, and it won't cost you anything. And, and any profit that they do raise, uh, they're going to dedicate to you know groups that are that are working to fight against the the COVID situation. But it, it really probably won't accumulate any money because it's for free. Very nice. And hey, you know that's a good cause. I'll yeah. I'll, I'll chip in for that. Uh, and you know what? We love talking about movies. We love making the picks. But if you have picks uh i mean this tonight's was a fan yep. pick yep. so go ahead hit us up on social media uh if you write a review on itunes like tell us in there what you want us to review and we'll uh we'll do it it just has to be 10 years old at least 10 years old but that's our only stipulation we keep it genre agnostic all right remember be kind rewind Stop it, please, for God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to, please, stop it, stop it now. Turn it off, turn it off. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it.